0: Here we are with the Bible archives and we are continuing Genesis chapter 2. We already started Genesis chapter 2 technically because we did Genesis chapter 1 and the content of that creation poem carries over to Genesis 2. So we wanted to have a separate episode now to start the next creation narrative which takes up the rest of Genesis 2. Uh, So you'll notice that there's this transition with generations that kind of um, bridges between the first creation poem and the second creation story. Uh, So uh, I think that's a good place to start.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that sounds good to me, and especially because both the Genesis uh, first story was written by a different source than the second Genesis story. So the first story was written by what we call the priestly source, and so it's much more liturgical, much more poetic. The second was written by the J or Yahweh source, and here we see a much more narrative form. We see God as a much more anthropomorphic God who interacts with humans more directly, speaking to them, dealing with them, caring for them. And because it's called the Yahweh source, they call them that because they use the name Yahweh. So here we see God called Yahweh as opposed to Elohim.
0: Yeah, and one of the first things you'll notice right in that opening line is you get the Lord God. So that would be uh, Adonai because the the Jewish people do not write out the Tetragrammaton, right? which would be uh, why... Uh, HWH mm-hmm. um, or yod Hey vav Uh in, in English Bibles it's usually uh, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D to designate that but you'd get Adonai Elohim now uh, when it says the Lord God so right away we notice oh this is a little bit different
1: yeah a different story, different people writing could have even been written at a different time um, one of the first things that I think you'll notice about it is the different way that human beings are uh, treated in this particular story. So in the first creation story, humans are just kind of collective, it's just humans are created. And then, you know, they're given some agency, they're given that command to to multiply and fill the earth, the same as the other creations. Um, in this story, humans are presented as individuals. And they're very empowered. It's almost sometimes at times they seem to concern God that they may not actually do the things that they're supposed to do, that they're going to become too much like God. And so God is sometimes moved to take action to um, prevent them or to limit them. In the things that they can do, uh it's also a very etiological story. Which the word etiological simply means that it explains how something comes about. So yeah. we see that in other literature as well, like um, Rudyard Kipling, how the leopard got its spots. You might say, and we're in later on in the Cain and Abel story. This is how violence came into the world, or or uh, when they talk about the genealogies. These are the first people people who used iron, for example. So this is that kind of a story. It explains things like why people get married. Um, Things like even things as simple as why we might be afraid of snakes or why are, have, if it's hard to have children, why we have to work hard for a living. All of these things kind of come in there, but they're not the main focus of the story. Um, there's a lot of symbolism to all of these things. I think it's important for us to make note of these symbols, and the three that I consider to be the ones that stand out to me are the g- garden, the idea of a garden that God has created and puts humans in, Um, the trees in the garden, and then the snake, who people get really complicated about that. I think that it's important to note at this point that there is a lot of cultural weight that goes around this, particularly this second creation story, because in the Jewish mind, it may have been more of a microcosm of the Abrahamic covenant with human beings. In the Christian mind, this sets up the idea of original sin. So we're gonna, we are going—we may not go in there, but we're going to at least make note of those things. So let's talk about some of those symbols that we talk about. And we can start with the idea of, of gardens. Okay. And we need to understand in ancient thought, it wasn't like the way we think of a garden where, you know, you have some plants, or even even in places like England or France where they have beautiful landscaping, these gardens were more of a status symbol for an emperor or a king, and often they were not just places of beauty or for that king to keep exotic animals, but it was a place for worship. Um, it might be a place for him to make decisions about what's going to happen to the people. And so a garden is an important a theme. And in this case, what we have is, is um, God is the one who creates the garden, and God has control mm-hmm. over the garden. We talk about trees, and this is really interesting because we have this motif of the tree, the snake, and Eve. This is a common motif, again, amongst the pagan nations of a goddess who has a tree and there is a snake in it. We see this in Egypt, we see it in Babylonian mythologies with Asherah in Egypt, her name is Nut, but she's basically the same goddess. And what's important about that is, once again, we see where, in this case, it looks different, whereas, to the surrounding people, the, the neighbors of Israel, they're going to see those motifs, and right away that's where their mind is going to go. Oh, they're talking about the goddess. In this case, God has control and access. So God controls access to the tree in the garden, and we also see God uh, subduing the snake in the garden. So as a symbol of the goddess, that, that snake is then subdued. Um, and I think that's important because... We need to understand that these these symbols might have been even Israelite symbols to start with. And so when we talk about early Israelite religion, it may not have been as homogenized as we think. Sometimes these gods and goddesses were continued to worship alongside the worship of Yahweh. And yeah, so
0: it, real quick on that, uh, sure. Because this is gonna come up throughout the entirety of Hebrew scriptures. If you have to have a condemnation or a commandment against something like not having idols, yeah, it's probably because it was a problem. It was so yeah. to. I think we kind of romanticize that, man. That all of Israel followed all of this so well, and look how peaceful it probably was. Uh, the archaeology actually implies that the noble or uh, religious um, emphasis, yeah, had these portrayals of idols and and all sorts of other commandments, the common population, that demographic, no, it's probably much messier than we would like. And it's not that different than what we see in, for example, American Christianity, where, you know, the things that the Bible says is not necessarily what's happening in most churches, Mm -hmm. especially when there's civil and political culture kind of intermixing with religious culture in Christianity. Uh, same in Israel, right? Absolutely, yeah.
1: yeah. And that's why they would write these stories, is because they were trying to contrast that or even write a polemic, perhaps, against that idea that, yeah. you know, you could have an Asherah pole, which is a pole to the goddess, symbolize the tree, right in front of the temple. You actually see that when they talk about Solomon's temple. Those Asherah poles were outside there. Yeah. This is a problem for these post exilic Jewish people coming back because their concern was. Because of this messiness, that may have been why they ended up in exile.
0: So when you talk about ideology, you know, that's that's part of the ideology going on here is, uh, you know, yeah, marriage and uh, plants and snakes and things sure. like that. Also, why do we do the things we do? Yeah, that that's part of the ideological narrative here. And trying to set a precedent against what was probably very common mm-hmm. amongst them
1: oh absolutely you yeah. know within household gods and goddesses things like that and so you know they're they're setting up that idea that let's make sure that we stay away from those things because why because we want to keep that national identity we want to make sure that we look different from our neighbors and so when we see all these kinds of symbols those kinds of things help them to then do that and I think that exile experience had that um, deep effect on them and that concern then with more of a purity and coming back to that commonality a more communal, um, more communal way of worshiping, so that they could then come together as a as a nation.
0: Yeah. Um, if you're comparing uh, Genesis one and Genesis two, and and part of what you're going to notice here is Genesis two and Genesis three are kind of the same story. So we're we're going to hit both of those here, um, but the contrast with Genesis one and Genesis two's narratives are are quite obvious, and that's why we said in the last episode. You know, these should be read differently. They're not they're not trying to build off of one another. Genesis two and Genesis three are. So we'll we'll see that. But you think of Genesis one and you've got uh a lot of structure to it, right? Well, Genesis two is a story. Mm-hmm. So in Genesis one you get this order, there's seven days in Genesis two, it's this plot and there's uh characters and actions and it's unfolding that way. Some more differences is Genesis 1 is this very majestic uh, portrayal of the universe. Well, here we're getting a very meek, down-to-earth, like literally down-to-earth uh, portrayal of things. Uh, Genesis 1, God creates by speech. Mm-hmm. You don't get any of that in Genesis 2. No, it's uh, much more hands-on. It, like literally, yeah. it's God molding um, the creation. Uh, God's transcendence, which is part of the Elohis tradition, the J or, uh, yeah, the, the E tradition, Mm -hmm. um, God's transcendence is more prominent in, uh, Genesis one, Genesis two, getting a lot of imminence, which is part of the J, the Yahweh's tradition. Um, you also notice with that, that God seems a little more distant, like out of the universe in chapter one, chapter two, very present, uh, you know, literally walking amongst, um, the the people in creation. Um, and then the climax of Genesis 1 is that creation of humans and Sabbath. Mm-hmm. Well, in Genesis 2, we don't really get that build to a climax. We get this build to um, a certain goodness between the companionship of the first humans that then leads into the next part of the narrative. Yeah. Right? So... These are, these are very, very different um, in their approach and in their content. Um, one of the things that you brought up with exile is, you know, if we were to stand back and look at Genesis 2 and Genesis 3, is another metaphor happening here with the garden is uh, the promised land versus exile. And there's some thoughts that Genesis 2 was written in, in uh, an exilic context Uh, to give a metaphor for what they were experiencing. So you have the garden, and the garden is lost. Yeah. Well, you have the promised land, the promised land was lost. And so Israel in exile is able to root themselves in, okay, we've been here before, and uh, able to use their tradition for how they're going to navigate exile. And so therefore, clues for them are built in Mm -hmm. um, on what they should be doing. Um, There's also this... a very different way that creation is portrayed as far as 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 how it happens. So in Genesis 1, you kind of have this sense that uh, God's actively creating most of existence, but there's an insinuation that this has pre-existed. It's just raw materials. Uh, In in Genesis 2, it just starts out, In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, or the skies and the land... Mm when no plant or field was yet in the earth and no herb of the field had yet sprung up it and it goes on, it's there feels like there's a lot of stuff in creation. Um, and what God's going to do is create very specific things, not very general broad stroke things, very specific things. And so uh, that's a little bit different, but also um, the creation of plants, streams, uh, trees, animals, humans, they seem to coincide with each other much more than you know the separate days yeah,
1: uh, yeah. and
0: movements of that. Uh, and I, I get this sense from Genesis 2 that what we're witnessing is creation is less about subverting dominant myths and is more about portraying Yahweh's grace uh, in that all of these are sort of these gifts uh, creation is a gift mm-hmm. from the divine um, so those are some uh, differences now if if we were to focus on some specific themes of Genesis 2 that will take us into Genesis 3 um, like what does Genesis 2 want us to see uh, about the world um, we're told that the purpose of human presence in Genesis 2 is to keep the garden for Adonai. Um, And just a a thematic note, you'll always hear me say Adonai uh, for the Tetragrammaton. It's partly tradition, partly habit. Um, So in the Enuma Elish, humans take over the toil of lesser gods. Yeah. Here, uh, they're told to keep the garden, and it's a gift for them to keep the garden, and it's a way to respond to God. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, and the word that's used for work, avad or bad, um, also means to serve or to worship. Mm-hmm. So there, you know, and this is something that, you know, actually Lutheranism did a good job of was, uh, to emphasize that work is a beautiful thing and doing good work. Well, cause work is also a form of worship. So when you think of the monastics, right. And, you know, work and pray, that That's built into the Hebrew word. So when it says, you know, they're working, that's also understood to be a uh, form of worship. So I think that's, that's quite unique in that yeah. sense. And that's, I think, something that we're meant to see of what is the human role in creation. Mm-hmm. Another thing that you see within this is companionship and community and the idea of a helper and the aspect of keeping the garden together So it's not just an individual role. This is something that's going to shape the identity of Israel to come, is that this is their role corporately. Mm -hmm. It's a very corporate vision of uh, humans working together in the garden.
1: Yeah, I mean, this is the first time when God says something is not good is when Adam is by himself. Yeah, you know, He says, this is not good for the man to be by himself. Mm -hmm. So it's the first time you'll see in these stories that something is called not good.
0: Yeah. Yeah. one other part we could focus on then is uh, Adam, the man, mm-hmm. and as he will soon be called. But Adam and uh, Eve. So Adam, uh, it just means from the dirt or from the earth. Earthling. And uh, with the, my favorite way that I've seen it translated is "dirt clod." Dirt,
1: oh, dirt clod. Okay, I
0: think and it's dirt
1: man. But yeah, <laughs> yeah. And
0: this, uh, this, th- this is important though. And the reason that the emphasis is there, there's two reasons. First, is that the human is made from dirt. So we talked about God molding, mm-hmm. and uh, the the human is made from this part of creation, and uh, exists in that way until the breath of God is mixed with the dirt. And, uh, you know, this could play into sort of dualism where, you know, we have a spiritual side and a physical side. Mm-hmm. But the dirt is also seen as a uh, gift of God as well. And what I see in this is, is less the dualism of spiritual versus physical, but of the need for materiality and this breathness, yeah, those have to both be there. If you just have the mm. spirit, the breath, uh, you don't have a living being. If you just have the dirt, you don't have a living brain, being. Right. It takes both of these things. Um, so the the uh, breath of life is emphasized again in Genesis two. That that is a commonality between the two uh, creation portrayals. Um, but this one has its own emphasis, which is the necessity of both. And those, when those things come together, that creates this thing called a human. So that's the first thing uh, that we see with Adam. The second thing is uh, we get no indication that Adam is a specific individual. Right. Because uh, Adam just means human. Mm-hmm. Uh, if It's an actual Hebrew word that just means human. Now we turned it into a name. Right. There's people named Adam now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, But it was it was just a word that described human. Uh, And you'll see Adam used all the time throughout the text as a Hebrew word that's just referring to a human being. Uh, And the same with Eve. Eve just means life. Now, if you are one that goes, it had to literally be two people, Adam and Eve. Those were their names. They didn't have uh, last names then. You know, they just all had first names. Uh, And you you really need to fight that battle and die on that hill. Go for it. I won't argue with you. Be careful that in doing so, you don't miss the larger point of this. And that humans represent... uh, uh, When you're seeing these two humans interact, it's a representation of humanity and life. Yeah. Uh, Because you're going to run into a problem if you take that it was two people thing because, you know, Cain... And later in Genesis 4, he's going to wander off mm-hmm. and he's going to find a whole bunch of people. He gets well, married, yes.
1: Th- wh- that story isn't even connected to the creation story, actually.
0: Well, <laughs> but like, where where do, where do those other people come from? Sure. The point wasn't that it was starting with two humans. They're telling us something about humanity. That one, uh, humans are made of creation and divine breath. Mm-hmm. Uh, but two, that these two ways of being are the central identities and markers of human existence. Adam and Eve, mm-hmm. uh, humanity and life. So that plays into this, um, and, and I think it's just an important thing to point out. Only because people will often go, "So I thought Adam and Eve were the first people, but then you know over here we read this. Y- right. y- yeah, you got caught up in the wrong detail there. Exactly. Uh, so again, don't you want to you want to die on that hill? Fine with it. Go ahead. Just don't miss the more important point of what this is saying about collective humanity in general. Sure. Mm-hmm. Right, um so let's uh get into the text uh, a little bit. One detail that i I think is is helpful generally here is that the Torah rarely engages in abstract analysis with philosophy and theology. again, we want to infer those things go for it like that that's part of our role, but we we need to see that we're handed a story here and work with the story, and then make interpretations off of it. Um, So, for example, um, verse 5, we're told about an empty earth, and and the earth isn't moving. Mm -hmm. And what that, I think, shows us is the role of people. that The human beings, the earth's not going to be complete. The earth's not going to be uh, the way it is intended to be, because it needs people to interact with it.
1: Yeah, doesn't it even say that... You are to till the earth and make it produce. Yeah,
0: it yeah. won't it won't mm-hmm. produce, it won't move. Yes. So in Genesis one, where you know, they bear seeds that bear seeds that bear seeds. Sure. Here it's the, the people are essential mm-hmm. uh, for guiding, caring for, uh, moving creation. And you get a more explicit uh, framework here of and if they're destructive towards it, not only is that going to make the earth not produce, they're completely going against their purpose, which is to Absolutely. guide the earth. So that's way more explicit here. Um, the uh, Another thing that I really like about, we already talked about the uh, Adam coming from the ground. That kind of comes around verse seven. Um, and the, the breath, the spirit, the ruach makes the humans fully alive. Um, and I like that emphasis on living beings. So when it's just a dirt, it's not, it's a being, mm-hmm. uh, the breath brings it, l- brings its life. And, um, I think in an age of technology and automation and, uh, luxury and comfort and distance from, uh, a lot of the world, absolutely. It's helpful mm-hmm. to see ourselves as living beings.
1: We are but, truly made out of these things. It might yeah. be, and coincidentally, a case where they made, got it right scientifically, because we literally are made about. out of dirt and air, especially when you think of the fact that every breath you take has been breathed by some other living being. I mean, the yeah. only air that we have on the earth is the planet has always been here.
0: And, and I think in modern culture, Christians have a, a responsibility and we have all the framework for it that we enhance that view of ourselves as part of creation. Absolutely. Um, Because we are, I actually had a friend in college who was a chemist and he said, uh, I think I could make a case for evolution based on uh, Genesis 2. Because he was reading it huh. in that way. And uh-huh. I was like, oh, very interesting. I never thought of it that way. Um So that's something interesting. Another thing I really love about Genesis 2 is that we're told that the trees are aesthetically pleasing. Yeah. That they're beautiful. hmm and there's sort of this, uh, you know, when you're talking about the garden and its role societally, you know, I always think of the hanging gardens Absolutely. of Babylon. Yeah, that this is kind of framed after. Um, but to to, I think most humans have this inclination, you know, like see a sunset or see a landscape and go, "That's really beautiful. That's pretty. Mm-hmm. It's aesthetically pleasing." Well, that seems built in to this. Yes. In um, I think that gives us some affirmation. Like, yeah, you should enjoy it. Yeah. It should be enjoyable. Um, Really like that part. What do you make of the naming of the animals?
1: I wouldn't know what to make of the naming of the animals. I find, I
0: find it really fascinating. You
1: know, the only thing I can say about names is that once you have given them, sometimes that creates a certain sense of power. Mm-hmm. It could also be another one of those polemics against, um, you know, the the other gods and goddesses who were animals by putting humans and saying, God created humans and then said, name these animals. It's a way of saying, yeah, you have control. These are not gods over you. You are the one who has Name. name. Yeah. Think of how powerful names are in the ancient Hebrew th- mindset. A- or even Absolutely. in the ancient New- Near East.
0: Yes, the, the names are powerful. It's important to see here, though, in Genesis 2, this isn't the first name we're given. So when Adam, Adam, names the animals, mm-hmm. somebody else has already given something else a name. And that was God, Yahweh, giving Adam a name. Okay. So yeah. I think the emphasis here is, Part of that uh, ancient Near Eastern tradition is that when you name something, you give it power. So think about a king uh, naming a title on a vassal or something. Sure. You're extending your power. So when God names Adam, uh, that's an extension of God's power. Yep. So Adam has this sort of wisdom, this breath, this ruach. And in naming the animals is extending that power to the animals. Exactly. So there's a lot of connection here. Uh, ecologically, I think, happening. Um, yeah, what else could we say about Genesis 2? Um, you brought up the, the the only time we're told something's not good is because humans were alone. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think that's absolutely fascinating. And uh, again, you know, if we're thinking about, this is about humanity, not just like two individual humans. Right. There seems to be something about humanity where this work of caring for the garden, that is creation, has to happen together. Right. And uh, we actually need each other because the experience of being connected is good enough and of itself. Right. Uh, so that seems uh, built in there. And I, I really like that image. Um, the other thing that we get, probably the thing that's quoted the most out of Genesis 2 is this whole marriage depiction that happens at the end. Right. Um, And I actually want to, I want to pull that up because uh, this is actually something that I have uh, interacted with a lot um, and really like. So the man says, this is the bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. This one shall be called woman, for out of man this one was taken. Therefore, a man leaves his father and mother and clings to his wife, and they become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Mm-hmm. that's going to lead right into Genesis 3. Okay. Yeah. And you got to, as you enter Genesis 3, you got to take all these themes of, of connection, of work, of joy, of goodness, um, and see what happens, right? But there is one sentiment that I could not cite for you. I do not remember This was probably 10, 12 years ago. Of uh that image of bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh was not unique. Um and the image is that flesh is strong and bone is weak. Hmm. Or no, other way. Uh, Because it it had to deal with um um burial practices. Oh, okay. Because the bones would remain and the flesh would deteriorate. So flesh was weak and bone was strong. And um, one commentary on, on this almost poetic lyrical line is that Adam, the man, Adam is saying that, uh, where I am, uh, where I am weak, you are strong and where I am strong, you are weak. Mm-hmm. And it's, if, if true, that connects back to the whole idea of not being alone, yeah. of not being separated, which, which that's something important to notice. It's not just lonely, it's separated. And uh, I've heard, I've seen some commentators say that um, the the multiplicity of people already exists, the problem is they're not connected together. They're disconnected. They're separated. Oh. So it's about bringing them together. Uh-huh. And that seems to be the point of Genesis 2.
1: Okay.
0: Um, but it's this, you know, if we wanted to get into male and female equality, mm-hmm. we're not shown that uh, Eve is uh, somehow lesser. We're shown that we're... Uh, Adam, the man is weak, the woman makes up for that. And where the woman is weak, the man weak and it's this cooperation between them. It's
1: more like an enmeshing then. Yeah of things rather than a, a separation of roles.
0: And and there would there'd be people in, you know, the feminist perspective that would say, well, you know, egalitarianism is not necessarily compatibilism and all of that but that does seem to be kind of what's going on there in Genesis 2 mm-hmm. and and regardless of where you are within that feminist conversation it's uh it's a pretty real picture in the ancient world you know
1: definitely more so especially with people who were more common people Where it's like work was the work it got done. And only the reason why men might do some work and women others is by physical strength. Mm -hmm. So it's hard to pull a plow through hard dirt. You might not be physically strong enough, but you can weave and you can cook and you can do these other things. No one said that one was woman's work or men's work. It was work and it all needed to be done. And one was just as important as the other.
0: Yeah. Um, So then uh, oftentimes when I'll uh, perform weddings, the couple will ask for... Uh, This text to be read, it's, you know, marriage text, right? Mm -hmm. Um, It doesn't specifically say this is marriage. Like it doesn't say, and when they become married.
1: um, Oh, that's true. So, Mm
0: -hmm. you know, we can obviously read into it that this would probably inform marriage. And it even comes up in the gospels that, yeah, this probably is about marriage but it's not primarily about the institution of marriage. Well, that's because right?
1: that institution is relatively modern if we're going to look right. at it from the way we look at it now.
0: What it is about, I think, right. is the household. Yeah. Right, the the unity of the relationship, which is very old.
1: Oh, absolutely. Um
0: and a couple things I think are important about this part of the text is one that it uses the word cling. Um it it's not this Enmeshment of two people into a singular thing—it's mm-hmm. two separate things clinging together, and the uh, the recognition of that separateness seems to be intentional. That these are still two different things, but mm-hmm. they're clinging, mm-hmm. um, and then you get this the the phrase, and they become one flesh. Uh, and the word for one is echad, and that's where I'm going to bring up some. I'm going to do some reader-oriented approach midrash right here. Uh, The word echad is the same word used in the Shema, where it says the Lord is God, the Lord is one. And that's supposedly a movement towards monotheism Mm -hmm. for uh, the Jewish people. And it's echad, but echad doesn't necessarily just mean numerical value one. It is um, uh, out of many make one. So, when we say uh, the Lord is God, the Lord is one, there's this plurality in singularity. There's, there's this multiplicity within a unity that makes it one thing made up of different parts. And this is just true about things. It's one house. Yeah. House is made up of a bunch of parts. It's one atom, but it, the atoms are made up of a bunch of parts. Sure. And uh, so, in Genesis 1, when it says, you know, uh, uh, let us make humans kind in our image mm-hmm. and it's first person plural. Mm-hmm. I don't think that would have actually been a problem for the Jewish people because Achad implies a certain plurality that comes together in unity. Hmm. All right, here's for now here's the Midrash part. Okay. When we're told that these two separate identities cling together, and this is where it is important to see. This is not just about marriage as an institution, because this is what the human beings are made for the entire time. The only not good thing is that they're separated. They're alone, but it's not just they're lonely. It, they're separated apart. They have to come together. When we do, the theory goes, we are actually experiencing something of what God is like. Oh, how interesting. In multiple parts coming together sure. into one fused thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when people ask me to uh, read, do talk about this at their wedding, you know, first, like, you sure you want me to do that? Because it could get really boring <laughs> really quick. <laughs> Uh, but the point becomes that when we see a multiplicity of human beings who have been fused in this real healthy way, we're actually seeing a portrayal of what God is like.
1: Yeah.
0: Marriage has the potential as an institution, but any relationship with this happens. Mm-hmm. Marriage has the potential to be a microcosm for what the whole world's supposed to experience. Yeah. Becomes a really beautiful image, I think. Mm-hmm. Um and, and this echadness should become the goal of all of our relationships that we experience that connectedness because that is what God is like. Right. So there's some thoughts on that. Um, Real quick on the tree, because this tree in the next chapter is going to be a problem.
1: The tree is a problem.
0: Going to have a problem here. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's two
1: trees and they're a problem.
0: And uh, when we talk about the tree, uh, and I'm specifically talking about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, yeah okay? one way I've heard that talked about is that it is a representation of imagination, okay that the understanding of the tree is is equivalent to this the capability of the tree that is representing a human conscious uh, propensity, so you know throughout Genesis two you're kind of getting these symbols for uh, the larger things of life. Right. So this tree it kind of depicts our understanding and experiencing all that is good and all that is bad, which is something that humans don't seem to be able to handle. And as directed in Genesis two is, doesn't seem important. They're meant to care for the garden. Um, as this comes up, like the, the commandment to not eat from it, you know, what, what does that come from? Uh, and I think we, I think I mentioned this last episode, but you know, the idea that God could have just not created that garden or that tree, but this would have meant keeping the humans from experiencing those good things like connection, caring for the garden, producing, etc. Um, and so. We just have to be really careful here as we enter Genesis 3. There's a lot of interpretations on what's happened. I know you mentioned original sin. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. The sense there- of
1: human free will comes up. You know, if, if, you know, some people say, well, it was almost kind of mean of God to put the tree there, knowing that humans might not be able to handle that. It's almost like putting a stumbling block, but it's, it's about free will and, and the human, um, We've got that whole idea of God ordering the world, and then rather than it being, like in the pagan world, evil and problems and things like that are caused by divine beings, demons, devils, things like that. Yeah. In the creation story, possibly that it was about, and this is an interpretation, um, that possibly is about human beings are sometimes the ones who create that chaos, and then how that is in interaction. It,
0: And all I want to say is that's one take. Yeah, that's one take. There's another take take within Judaism Mm -hmm. that this is actually a good thing. Okay. And in fact, all that we're witnessing, if this is the imagination and consciousness and understanding and experiencing the full spectrum of existential reality.
1: Perhaps what separates us then from being like the animals?
0: Yeah. And all we're witnessing is children becoming adults. Okay. They're naked and they felt no shame. Mm-hmm. Well, they grow up and now yeah. they have this consciousness and, and there's a whole sector of people who go, also it's just the development of a human. Mm-hmm. It's not a bad thing. It's yeah. part of it. Um, the, at, at the same time, you, there's another midrash I've read of how um, God knew that this was going to happen. And uh, some of the, divine beings around God, like the cherubim and things like that. Uh, try to convince God, don't do it. Just don't even create any of it. Um, and there's this sort of disposition of God that better to have the experience than not to experience anything at all. Mm -hmm. And there's a whole philosophical school that says, um, it's immoral to have children Mm -hmm. because you guarantee that they will suffer and will cause other people suffering. And they say, uh, uh, and, and, and this, this Midrash says, just because we know that there's going to be bad things doesn't mean we shouldn't do it.
1: Well, it's that whole, what's good is just as true as what's bad.
0: So, but the, the, the other taken here, which has, again, nothing to do with original sin.
1: Right. Is no. them
0: saying God gave the gift of all of the experience. And would some of that, uh, have remote possibilities of, uh, not a, not preferred things? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. But God still goes ahead and does it anyways, uh, because it would also eliminate the good possibilities. Mm-hmm. So just know there's a lot of takes on this. So,
1: Like I said, a lot of cultural weight here, a lot of baggage around these stories. Yep.
0: So let's jump into uh, Genesis 3. And one of the things, I could probably just say this, and I'd be fine with being done. The word sin isn't in the whole chapter.
1: That's
0: right. So as soon as somebody says original sin, Genesis three, I go, that's interesting. Um I'm not sure where you made that up from because sin's not in there. So uh let's look at a few different things with Genesis three. Uh, but there's just a couple points that I want to make that I think are important from my experience interacting with this text with uh, you know, people in our community. Um so you had brought up the snake a little bit. Mm-hmm. And snake's interesting. But uh, So the Hebrew word there is arum, okay. which just means naked or clever.
1: Right. Okay.
0: And uh, there are some instances where the snake was also a symbol for uh, immortality, yeah. eternal life. Again,
1: that's Babylonian.
0: Fertility. Mm-hmm. I think you yep, brought fertility. that up. fertility. Uh, power of sexuality, yep. healing. So Epic of Gilgamesh is my most my biggest experience with the snake thing mm-hmm. um, where the snake seizes the plant of life secured by Gilgamesh.
1: Yes, he does.
0: So you're kind of seeing some reference there uh, mm-hmm. of what's going on. Um, but all of the things that you had said with the snakes and that ancient culture, you know, I think, I think the author wants you to hear all of that stuff mm-hmm. coming into it. Um, but what I find really interesting here is the snake is, you, like you said, it's created by God. Mm-hmm. And it's just one of the wild beasts of creation. Sure. That, that's
1: it. Yeah, it's it's not a it's, God. It's completely dethroned. A, yeah, exactly.
0: Yeah. Um, and then uh, in the dialogue with the snake, it's something I might need to look into more, but the name of God is consistently Elohim. Is that right? Never Adonai. So the snake never pronounces the Tetragrammaton. Oh, I'd have to confirm I don't that, that the
1: snake actually speaks to God at any point, uh,
0: but even talking about, Oh,
1: right. Only says oh, Elohim. Like, is it really so that God tells you that yeah. you're not supposed to eat from this never. Tree? And
0: this is, this is Genesis two, which is, was just Yahweh, 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 all the time. And now you have, uh, only the snake only ever says Elohim, which, which is an interesting place to put the snake in. It's not an equal. Yes. You know, within that, um, also, real quick, I sometimes forget that people think this, uh, but the snake is not Satan? No,
1: never says that. Not the
0: devil? So can we stop Stop saying that? Mm-hmm. We're, we're making a uh, logical fallacy there yeah, absolutely, uh, and a categorical error. Mm-hmm. That's not the case. <laughs> Please stop with that. Yeah. Um, now, one thing that I really I find powerful when we, you know, we went to great lengths to talk about how the... Uh, composition and compilation of Genesis has roots in the exile experience and the the dream of the prophets, this would be, in my opinion, primarily, what's the reason for Genesis 3? It's to show the first exile that ever happened. Okay. Because Adam yeah. and Eve are literally exiled here. Yeah. This is the first exile. If that's the case, the princi- uh, principle of first mention mm-hmm. is... Then, when you look at the exile, mm-hmm. one thing you can hear is that the writers, the authors, were trying to tell the exiled people uh, hints of what they ha- what they should be experiencing, what they should be doing by learning from the first exile, mm-hmm. right? So they put this ideological story about exile in here, and and that becomes a precedent for this has happened before, mm-hmm. and this is how this is how we move forward.
1: Sure, we see that in the Exodus story too where Mm -hmm. it's like an undoing of creation it's another story that's hung on a symbolic frame yeah so whether it was an actual historical event yes as they say maybe maybe not but it's still hung on that frame and it still shows that idea of exile the absence of God, Moses uh, creates out of, you know, is in the water, or doesn't create, but Moses is in the water. You know, there's all these different motifs that you'll see mm-hmm. in the creation story, and then that it helps them to understand their their situation of exile.
0: But here's one thing that I want to point out about the exile. So the exile in Genesis 3 happens when they're removed from the garden. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's done for their protection. The punishments all happen while they're still in the garden the the curses that they're given mm-hmm. don't happen after they've left. They happen while they're there. Okay. So use that frame to then look at what happens to uh, Israel and Judah uh, later down the road. Mm-hmm. Is while they're home, while they're in that space, they're uh, confronted. And the response is exile. And a lot of people want to go, they're getting punished for their sins. There they go. Oh, yeah. And is it really God going, uh, this is a holy space. I'm going to protect you from what would happen if you stayed in this holy space while not uh, upholding the holiness of it. Oh,
1: sure. That's something like you see in Leviticus and places like that where someone has to be ready, prepared to be in a holy space. Yeah. And if people interact with it in a bad way, not because of sin, but because you can't interact with the divine presence that way. Yeah. Usually they end up getting killed.
0: And so is exile, uh, actually a form of protection of protecting Israel against itself? Mm-hmm. You know, you think of, uh, you know, an, an addict who is going to kill themselves, mm-hmm. and you go in and you remove things they want and you have to watch them and, and care for them and, and interact with them in a way. And it seems like punishment and yeah. it's actually protection. And we want to use a lot of language of God kicked them out of the garden and they were so evil that God had to. And there's no inclination that God doesn't want them there and God does not desire for them to restore that. It's God in a moment protecting them. So we'll look at that more in a second. But I think that's important to see is this correlation with exile and that should then inform how we read the exiles uh, Mm -hmm. because I think they're trying to make a connection for us. Yeah. Um, You get this... uh, curiosity of the woman Mm -hmm. that leads to this instance Mm -hmm. and uh, probably one of the worst things that could happen is men got a hold of that passage (laughs)
1: Well, this is also something you see in other mythologies. Curiosity of women. Pandora's box comes to mind right away. You know, that this is always a thing. So, yeah, men got a hold of it. And?
0: Uh, Well, so, uh, back when I said that uh, the Jewish tradition, there's one where, you know, God knew this and it wasn't a bad thing. So that same tradition goes on to say, thank God the woman was curious because she is the reason why the world continued to progress and humans found what it meant to be human. So they don't, again, they don't see the women's thing as a mm-hmm. bad thing. A lot mm-hmm. of Christians do. Okay. And I, I'm just throwing out there that there's multiple mm-hmm. ways uh, to look at this.
1: That's right. And it's led to a lot of bad theology and bad treatment of women.
0: Absolutely. Yes. Now,
1: uh, what was I going to say about that? I forgot. I'm sorry. Okay, that's
0: okay. Um, the Another, another uh, thematic refrain is uh, the awareness of nakedness mm-hmm. and shame. And again, I I alluded to, there's a Jewish tradition that says this was not a bad thing. It was pre-consciousness becoming consciousness. And that's just part of the development of any human being. You know, if you've been around a baby, yeah, they look like the first humans in the garden.
1: And little toddlers are always taking off their clothes and running around. Yeah, <laughs> They and love then, to do this. They go through a
0: stage. And, and then it, it, it develops, and that's the idea of consciousness. So there's a the whole theory that that's actually what's happening here. Just something to consider. Mm-hmm. Just throwing that out there. Um, what, reading Genesis two and Genesis three together, something that I find interesting as a, a, from a psychological level is the conflict of relationship that had, um, happens between the man and the woman. So in Genesis two, it's flesh of my flesh, bone of my bone. Yep. Uh, here. Uh, Adam refers to the woman again. This was now the only, the second time that the Adam has referred to the woman. Mm-hmm. And now he calls her, uh, she who you gave me. Yeah, That's a problem because that's not what was claimed in Genesis two. It was the, the bone of my bone flesh of myself comes from Adam. Mm-hmm. Now it's no distant abstract gave to me. Um, And from here, you get this unraveling. And I think it's worth paying attention to the details here because this is often where women uh, have suffered a lot of abuse because of this passage. Uh, So the man then blames Adonai and the woman. Okay? Mm -hmm. Who does the woman blame? The snake. Just the snake. Yeah. Who who does a better job here? (laughs) The woman. Yeah. The the man has... uh, Pass passed off blame to God and the yep. other person, and the woman just points out it's the snake. So there's an apparent disconnection in this relationship.
1: Yeah. I've even heard it said, you know, that the man would have heard the command directly, whereas he told the woman, and this is just a midrash again, where it's like Adam was created, heard the, heard the command about don't eat from that tree then he told Eve, don't eat from the tree. She even adds to that, don't touch it, when she talks to the snake. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, so it's like he's blaming her for something that maybe he didn't necessarily clearly communicate. Mm -hmm. And the fact that, oh, I had a thought about it, I'm sorry. Um, Yeah, that fact that, that he's trying to, no... Can't remember, but yeah, that's that, I've heard that one. You know that it's some somewhat about it, that you, breakdown of communication. And if you
0: read that breakdown, it seems that the man is the one who's negatively portrayed there. At least to me, in my reading, I just hear a lot of people talk about it's the woman who's the problem. Um, but I want to fast forward because there's a lot of things in there that I hear people talk about, like you know the snake uh, alters the command. Uh, you know, did, did God really say that you would die? And yeah, th- th- that's all in there. I want to fast forward because I think the real point of Genesis 3 comes at the end. Um, so from here, you're going to get the curses, uh, toil, which was good, right? <laughs> okay. Avad, mm-hmm. it was uh, work and worship were the same thing. Toil becomes painful, right? We're never told, said, told that work is bad. Right. We're told that it becomes painful. Uh, the woman is the creator uh, throughout this, Mm -hmm. Eve meaning life, Mm -hmm. bearing life. And that creation problem is now painful. Mm -hmm. Um, We look at this as punishment. Fine, uh, go with that, curses. Um, I've heard people discuss this in a way that that I'm interested in. And it's, are these simply natural consequences of... Uh, the world that they've created? Is it God going, well, since you did this, I have to come up with something to make your life hard. Ah, we'll make these things hurt. Yeah. Or are these simply the the natural effects of the world that they've been actively creating? Because remember, the world will work according to how they produce it. Mm -hmm. Did they actually create this? Uh, And, you know, as a parent, natural consequences is a very effective way to parent where you know one of my children will do something and it's like okay so you decided this mm-hmm. now this is what's going to happen mm-hmm. and guess what it's going to suck yeah but we still have the autonomy and the agency to do something about it
1: that's right
0: um so i, I see that i th- i think the ultimate effect here is that in creating life and sustaining life so giving birth and producing food um it's difficult now so whatever has happened has led to this being difficult mm-hmm. um and I've seen some commentators bring up this two-pronged critique in in the midst of the curses uh, and use this to kind of paint away of how God seems to be developing alongside of creation. So God seemed not to have anticipated how quickly humans would push limits if we're going to use that free will depiction of Genesis 3. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the punishments contained in this chapter, if... If all that happens was they they push the limits of this a little bit far and they eat this fruit, the punishments seem disproportionately harsh. Yeah, towards them. Uh, but then so that's the first prong. The second prong then is that God threatens to kill them. Right. one of, one of the the effects of this is death. Right. That punishment is lessened. It's it's not it's not carried out.
1: Not at that moment.
0: No. So it, it's, it's this really interesting thing. It was like, mm-hmm. all right, God, that seemed like you got anger management issues. Probably didn't <laughs> need to say that. And then it doesn't actually, some, some of the, the most stark effects of this don't actually happen. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, yeah. Some have pointed out that the snake wasn't necessarily lying. It was more like, prevaricating because it's like he said, well, you'll, you won't die. Well, not in that moment mm-hmm. actually. And then you will become like God knowing good and bad. Well, kind of. Yeah. yeah.
0: And and that, that whole part of knowing good and bad, this is where some of the Jewish thought is, uh, you know, all, what that means is to consciously observe the world innocently or maturely. Right. And all, again not really all, bad... all, all that's happening is just seeing the reality of the world. Mm-hmm. Um, that's not, a bad thing. Now, what what does seem to be agreed upon in most circles is that this takes things in the wrong direction because it leads to the disconnection of right. the the humans, which is supposed to be connected. Disconnection with creation, yeah. Disconnection with God. All of this is they're doing, by the way. Bills
1: and bills and bills until you get the flood story, and it just yeah. yeah and this so, all leads one narrative. So, so to yeah, the this other. is kind
0: of things of like what happens when things dis- disconnect
1: again. Humans causing that chaos, yeah.
0: Yeah, and that's that's the brilliant part of of it is. Mm-hmm. You know, in a world that is good and ordered, here you have humans causing chaos. Yeah,
1: and it's not demons, it's not them it's humans. That's absolutely
0: important to Mm -hmm. bring up, absolutely. Um, And then, you know, you think about this in one way of like them seeing what they're not supposed to see which unlocks this capability Mm -hmm. because uh, knowing good and evil is not a bad thing.
1: No, you should know good and evil because then you can choose good,
0: but it does seem like they're exposed to something that we're not intrinsically capable of handling. And this is where I bring in the philosophical table of going, uh, you know, sentient finite means Mm -hmm. what are our limitations and have is the real problem here is that humans have, when they extend past their limitations, it causes problems.
1: Yeah. Maybe that's what they tried to do.
0: Yeah. Um. And then you know, you'll get that part towards the end, you know, where uh, God says, "Where are you?" Yeah. Uh, and you know, you had brought up with the J source about that tangible presence. God is very involved as a character. Yeah. Um, but let's look at this, the the end of uh, Genesis three, and you know, I had already brought up that sin is not mentioned. Okay. So I'm just going to read the last part. That's right. Then the Lord God said, see, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. So far, we're not told that's a bad thing. Right. We're told now the problem. And now he might reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. That's the problem. Yeah. The problem is not that they know good and evil. Mm-hmm. The problem that is in a state that they might not be able to handle might be expanding past their limits. That's causing disconnection. They'll live forever in that. Mm-hmm. That's the problem here.
1: And again, protecting them from themselves. Because they're, now they're going to have to live forever in that state.
0: Is, is this mm-hmm. what happens next. Therefore, the Lord God sent him forth from the Garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken which is what the purpose was at the beginning of Genesis 2. Exactly. Still living out that purpose. Mm-hmm. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a sword flaming and turning to guard the way to the tree of life. Is this a form of protection? I I just, I think you can very realistically read Genesis 3 and not go... This is a terrible thing. Yeah. There's no Satan in it. Snake seems to be completely about uh, subverting dominant mythologies. Mm -hmm. Uh, And the emphasis seems to be on something that these first humans experience, especially with their disconnection towards each other, that leads to them being in a state that could cause further problems. And God protects them from that. And that's the exile image that, uh, you know, so so now, if we were to transpose this to the exile experience, what did the authors possibly want these post-exilic people to know about exile? Mm-hmm. The exile happens when humans push past their limits and interact in a way that causes disconnection from how things are meant to be, and God protects us from that. Okay. And what's really important uh, in in Genesis three as well mm-hmm. is. Uh, there is still hope for restoration. And as the story continues now, it will be a way, uh, an attempt to find a way to reconfigure the experience of Genesis 2. Okay. Um, so that's where all Kinda, I think it's going to yeah, go.
1: starting with that Abrahamic covenant. Right? Yeah, I would yeah.
0: even say, I would even say starting with, yeah, probably Abrahamic covenant. Because mm-hmm. from here, what we're mm-hmm. going to see is the effects. Yeah. And I want us to constantly, we won't see the word sin until Genesis 4 right and I like using that image of expanding past our limitations right. of more than we're capable of and we overextend and it causes these terrible effects and if you look at it um, often this is when human beings are selfish mm-hmm. uh, and if you just like start thinking about all of the problems in the world how do they start mm-hmm. humans playing with tools that, we don't know how to use yeah you know that's mm-hmm. the image that i get in genesis 3 mm-hmm. and the image of of god in genesis 3 is not this like wrathful kick him out it's yeah it, it, it seems like a really healthy parent going okay yeah. this is what we're gonna have to do now yeah yeah uh and and let's see if we can make this work again so the rest of genesis 1 or uh, 3 through 12 you're gonna see kind of how this builds ahead of steam And then we're going to see the response. Right. Um, And you're going to, with that, you're going to see this motif of moving east. So they were moved east of Eden. Mm -hmm. And they're going to continue. You'll see that phrase come up. As they moved eastward. As they moved eastward. And that's going to become a theme for a while. Okay. Um, So keep that in mind. And think about uh, who was east. East you know if israel is 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 right there uh, on the Mediterranean uh on the Levant kind of you know coming down from Turkey, going mm-hmm. into egypt, mm-hmm. what's east Babylon and Assyria yeah all of Israel's sure. enemies are east <laughs> oddly enough so <laughs> when when the humanity moved eastward right, who did they become?
1: More Babylon
0: like and Assyria. That's and it, yeah. that's what happens when this problem gains ahead of steam. Yeah. And this mm-hmm. is going to be one of the things you're going to see is there seems to be a resistance towards technology in civilization uh-huh. and empire. Yeah. And I think it starts I think it starts right there. That,
1: yeah. And again, it's like now you're seeing it through that lens of exilic writers and post-exilic writers editing, writing these stories down mm-hmm. in a way that helps them to understand what's happening. It's like, it, it, you. as soon as you know that, that this is when those things were mostly written, now you see it everywhere in the text. And yeah. you can always find a way to go back to that then. And this is how they inform their stories and how they tell their stories about who they were.
0: Yeah. Well, hopefully we cleared up some things about Genesis 3, and uh, hopefully we were able to properly nuance Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, and that's going to end this first segment of the book of Genesis. Uh, so from here, we're going to jump into Genesis 4 and 5, then mm-hmm. we'll look at the flood narrative um, and then the rest of uh, the primitive history, mm-hmm. um, and we'll just keep on going chapter by chapter through it. Uh, But we did feel like it was appropriate to spend more time on the creation narratives and this uh, narrative that I will refuse to call the fall.
1: Exactly. (laughs) This sets the stage for what's to come.
0: So um, if there's one chapter in in the Bible that I think Christians need to take a better look at, it's Genesis 3. So hopefully we did that. And uh, um, we'll see what happens as we continue next time with Genesis 4 and Cain and Abel.